do you know if you as a DM or DMs you've played with have certain descriptive words that you overuse a lot to the point where it almost catches the attention of your players when you use it too much? Well, I know that Dan was always uh, Baleful Howl, right? In the and Toothy Ma. Yeah, and uh, what was the other one? Uh, it's in a heap. Everything was in a heap for a while there. <laughs> it's a lot of heaps. Yeah, for me... Heaps I- of heaps. I have to watch out for the for the non-descriptive descriptive words. Like I will use, uh, it's fantastic. It's amazing. But that doesn't tell you anything. Right. Right. Like, oh, it's a spectacular show of, yeah, I'm not helping at all. Right. That's that's kind of my downfall. I'm trying to tell them how to feel instead right. of describing it and letting them feel for themselves. Yeah. All right. I actually, I actually even asked two of my players if I had any words that I overuse and they in a quick prompt couldn't come up with anything. I don't know if that's good or bad. No, that's good. That means you've got a varied vocabulary. Kyle, do you have anything? I really like the word ooze. So probably that. <laughs> I feel like the word icker comes up a lot in D&D as well. I, I swear to God, that is one of the most mispronounced words in the entire human language, but it only ever comes up in D&D. It's icker. Yeah. Or- oh, yeah. Right. God, nobody can seem to agree. I've only ever read the word. Like I've never heard it in everyday speech. I always thought it was Icor. I feel like a lot of these very frequently mispronounced words in D&D are words that people only come across either in D&D or in fantasy books. Oh, yeah. Like the frustratingly frequently mispronounced chasm. Yeah. Can't tell you how many chasms. Oh, it's even worse for us. real? It, it, it's, it's worse for us up in Canada when you guys say foyer, right? Like there are so many. Words. Yes, because Americans have such a ridiculous inconsistency with whether or not we will lower ourselves to French pronunciations <laughs> of words that are, orig- that are originally from French. All right. I got a question for you, Jeff, before we wrap up the cold open. Is it decal or decal? It's decal. Fuck off. <laughs> It's it's sticker, really. <laughs> it's a mimic, the round table Dungeons and Dragons discussion, where you never know what you're going to get. Welcome to another episode in our conversation on Dungeon Master Tips. I'm Adam, and with me are Jeff and Kyle, and this episode is called Setting the Scene, Using Your Uncommon Senses. We've previously covered a lot in our conversation on dungeon mastering, including world building, condition effects, some of the variant rules, and managing the in-game and out-of-game perspectives on dungeon mastering. You can find over 30 episodes covering DM tips, tricks, and inspirations on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and dozens of other podcast apps, or you can jump over to YouTube and dig into the entire playlist on dungeon master tips that we've built there. In this episode of the It's a Mimic podcast, This panel of Dungeon Masters is going to deliberate profusely regarding expressive and illuminating expressions, vocabularies, and terminologies, concentrating primarily on the frequency and circumstances in which to fixate on specific details and by what method to apply these previously mentioned details. Obviously, fanciful language and descriptive words are important when setting the scene, but a good lexicon is not the be-all and end-all of setting a scene appropriately. So before we get started, gentlemen, I just want to ask you both, how satisfied are you with those written blocks, the the text that is in the modules and adventure paths? Is it descriptive enough for you or do you always add something a little more? Let's uh, let's roll initiative on this. Oh, I gotta pull out a dice. I 
feel like the next two words out of my mouth will be common for this entire episode. It depends. Yeah. Well, that's the damn nature of a conversation like this, right? Yeah. It's because there's no hard and fast rule. And it's why we need to have discussions and conversations about this. And I feel like a lot of other podcasts and a lot of columns I've read, they talk about don't say this word, use this word instead, right? Or they just essentially point you to a thesaurus. And so I really want to talk this episode about when to use different uh, descriptive words, when it's overkill, and, and uh, what we should be thinking about when we talk about um, setting the scene for our players. Kyle, what'd you roll? Uh, 19. I got a 16. And a 15. Going last with a 15. That's uh, Curse of the DM, eh? so how satisfied am i i'm yeah. pretty satisfied like it does the job it is nothing overly descriptive i'll generally add a little bit just because i tend to wax poetic but I, th- I think it does the job i uh i i can't keep my hands off of freaking retooling and reworking i just i'm running curse of strahd right now and as the first module that i have run in the last like 30 years this has been such a pain in the ass for me to to prep and work through and whatnot and a lot of the times i'm like why didn't they just connect this to this and why is this so i'm always changing the words but i feel like it's from a homebrew perspective i'm pretty satisfied with the descriptive language they're using i'm about 50 50 i think it depends on what i want out of this description sometimes they're just enough and they do what needs to be done without using too many words Sometimes I feel the need to add things and at other times I completely rework whatever it is. And the reason why varies just as much. So generally, sure, for the quote average DM, which is going to kind of catch everybody under that umbrella. Yes, I think I'm satisfied, but it's clearly not going to be everything for everybody. And I think they know that. One of the things that I always stop and think about is why are they making us read this portion out directly now? And I've noticed that the thing that they tend to focus on is uh, locations more than anything else. They will give us a description of a uh, person or an object or an item, but we rarely get anything like uh, actions or movements or anything involved in the description. So like that tends to be buried in the text somewhere and seems to be very loose. So I just think it's interesting that there's more of a focus on the exploration pillar when it comes to the actual module descriptions. That's fair. I find that they leave characterization of NPCs in written modules very, very open to interpretation in how central a figure this NPC might be in a scene or the module at large. Um, Even just going back to Curse of Strahd, it gives That module gives you multiple NPCs where it gives you a moment of introduction. The first time that you meet this NPC, and it gives you very vague motivations, and that's it. They leave you to fill in all of the rest. And if you're not prone to doing that on your own, to getting joy out of finding a way to thread this NPC into the weave of your campaign tapestry, it could leave some DMs not knowing what to do with the stuff that they leave out or that they give you the tiniest little piece of and nothing else. Yeah, I think the danger there is that you can't give a DM too much. Like you can't have it set in stone and like this is exactly how you should play it uh, because uh, that NPC is going to change depending on the party and its reactions. So you kind of have to tailor make it a little bit for what works best 
for your party. Yeah, I always want there to be a little sidebar about essentially the initial intent. Why is this NPC in this uh, this game, especially if they're important enough to have a, a stat block, like at the back of the book or whatnot. I want a little motivation. This is what they want. Here's a breakdown in, in three very, very short paragraphs. This is what they want. This is their main tactic to do it. And this is their overall attitude. And of course, this is just meant as a guideline for DMs. Change what you want, right? Because God knows mm. we're all going to change it anyway. But it's nice to have it kind of pointed in the right direction for us. But let's let's talk about description. So one of the things that I noticed, I was I originally sat down to do an episode on descriptive words. It was very similar to everything else that's out there because it's one of the things we haven't covered yet really on the podcast. Dan and Terry and I went over it got 150 episodes ago uh very very briefly about basically the idea of show don't tell if you're not familiar with this it's a creative writing term and it essentially means don't tell some don't tell your players that the person across from them is creepy describe the creepy things they're doing and let them come to their own conclusions the more that you do this, the more your players will become engaged in the narrative uh, and the setting and the NPCs that you've laid out in front of them. Don't just tell them that it's a really big flock of crows. Show them it's big. There are over a hundred crows. They blot out the sun. It's shit like that. The more descriptive we get in showing and not simply just telling the players, the more engaged they're going to be. This is actually one of the last things that most DMs learn to do because we, when we start off, are so focused on the mechanics. And then our other major uh, focus tends to be really table management. Whose turn is it next? What are you going to do on your turn? Hey, guys, put your phone down and pay attention, right? The idea of painting the picture is why we like people like Matt Mercer, for example. He has great descriptive language, and he shows he doesn't tell. He never tells the players how to feel. He only gives them the information with as much detail as they need to react appropriately. Now, when it comes to this, I, as I was really thinking about it, it broke down in my head to essentially be about the senses, because when we're describing things to people, we want them to perceive, and that comes down to the to the basic senses. Um, and it kind of structures strangely because it's not as easy as saying, hey, you know, there's a couch in the corner. That's not descriptive. Yes, you've identified something, but you haven't described it. So it's not simply just nouns and, and verbs. We Those are the things we then want to describe further. It's not enough that it's a couch. It's a gray, rotted out couch with bits and pieces of straw sticking out from between the, like you can get deeper into it. Um, and I essentially broke it down into there being five things that we are always describing. It's people and animals, that's one, places, objects and items, actions, and then reactions. Have I missed anything on that, guys? Or is there one that sticks out to you as being the most important or the least important? Not off the top of my head. I, I think it their importance changes uh, depending on the moment. Is there anything that you tend to focus on more than others? Mm, 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 probably people. I don't have a specific answer other than whichever of these things helps to establish the mood I'm going for at the moment. Yeah. 
that's a really interesting comment. I want to talk about it a little later in the episode. The idea that what we're trying to do with our description is not just pass information, but also establish mood, um, really setting the tone for things. And that's ultimately what this description is. It's the difference between just an info dump and uh, and or just, you know, exposition and giving the real flavor here. The thing that I'm the weakest at is objects and items. If someone finds a sword on a body, hey, you found a short sword. It does 1d6 damage. Right? <laughs> like, I, I never think about, oh, it's got a rusted hilt with the... Like, I just don't get into it because they've looted the body. I rolled on a random table. This doesn't yep. matter to me. It might matter to them, but they'll probably just pawn it off at the next village. So I don't think about it. And I feel like I'm missing probably some of the some of the flavor that I could be hitting. Now, I said before that a lot of other sources out there talk about um, what words to use uh, in what scenario. But I find that I know how to use a thesaurus. I know how to use a dictionary. And I read. I read a lot. So I have a pretty solid vocabulary. Um, I know that you guys both read a lot as well. And I have listened to at least Kyle uh, go off about DMing. And you are incredibly descriptive with your language. Yeah. You tend to stop and really put the, the effort into which words are specifically used. Does it drain you as a DM doing that prep? Only when people don't pay attention to it. When I go through all that work and I'm really proud of what I wrote and they're just like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and don't hear it all. So I no, I just, I love it. I love flavor text. I love really getting nitty gritty into details. It makes me happy. So it's never really a wasted effort to me. Jeff, how do you feel when you, uh, when you're doing your descriptive prep, when you sit down, are you picking out like specific words to use? This is exactly how I'm going to describe this. I'm going to script it out for myself. And if you do that, is it exhausting or does it come naturally to you? Sometimes and no. Um, <laughs> some, sometimes, sometimes I spend a lot of time coming up with uh, setting a scene, scripting a scene, trying to figure out exactly how this might go so that it goes the way I want it to. And when that, when I do that, I don't find it to be taxing. I just kind of vomit into my notes. Um, other times it just feels more appropriate to just give myself a couple of words for bullet points and go off the cuff. Um, and I don't necessarily know that I can accurately describe which one I do when, unless it's a very particularly important moment. Um, and as far as like being exhausted by players that don't pick up what you put work into, I think no matter what you as a DM put a lot of work into, you're always going to be frustrated by players that don't notice something that you put effort into, whether it's the, your descriptive words or the wonderfully layered combat encounter that you planned down to ridiculous minutiae. I find it more exhausting to work myself up to actually open my laptop and prep than I do to actually prep. Oh, I'm like that with editing. I was, who's I talking? I was talking to Tyler um, about this the other night where I'm like, I rant and bitch about editing until I'm at the computer. Then I have a great fucking time doing it. Yep. Yeah. Right. Once I sit down to prep, I will sit at this laptop for six or seven hours and look up and realize that it's after midnight and I need to wake up at five. Yeah. And not realize any time passed at all. So exhaustion physically because I'm dumb and deprive myself of sleep. <laughs> sure. Uh, but not because I find the work taxing once I actually do it. Yeah, for me as well. I I, I used to script all of the time. Um, my DMing style is different than most people. I get so into the details of the prep um, that of the world that 
and and you know and counterbalance that my job is merely reacting to others so i try not to prep except when i specifically want to hit an exact tone or describe something a very specific way because it's a clue to something else right then i'll get really nitty-gritty but otherwise i'm sitting and listening and watching what they're reacting to and then describing what they what they're asking for right when they i'm going to roll a perception check great what are you looking for? And then I will get into the description of it. And because I run a fleshed out world that I've spent hundreds of hours building, which is insane, and I don't recommend that anybody else does that, um, I don't feel the need to script it out until I, I very much need to focus on something specific. I find that the vast majority of the time I spend prepping is not scripting things. It's building a mental picture and a mental flowchart of what's coming in the next session. Yeah. Um, uh, it's, or, I, I need time to compartmentalize. These are the places I may end up. These are the things that are going on there. These are the multiple branching scenarios that may occur, which even if those aren't the roads the players take, I find myself better prepared to deal with things that are unplanned. If I do have other things planned, I can use, but I find that the amount of time I spend choosing descriptive words and scripting things is small. That's... But but I have to say, when I sit down and do it, I usually get pretty positive results from my players, right? Yeah, not same. Say, that's not to say that I'm excellent at it. It's just saying that it is appreciated. Um, players yeah. like to know uh, when something is very clearly laid out. And this is supposed to be this definitive way, instead of you just shrugging and saying, I don't know, maybe. And that's one of the, one of the things about descriptive words, the hidden benefits, is that it gives us specificity and it makes our world feel real. It doesn't make it feel made up on the spot, right? Yeah, and I'll say one more thing about this that's something I struggled with and sometimes still struggle with if I don't intentionally make sure that I don't do this, uh, particularly for newer DMs. The picture that is in your head of the area around your players does not exist for your players until you describe it. It's very easy for me to have this mental picture of everything my players see, but if I don't do a good job of setting that scene, I'm the only one that can see it. Mm -hmm. So taking a little bit of time to think about how I'm translating the picture in my head to the picture that they can form in their heads, whether you use maps or not, it's very easy when you're not accustomed to doing this to just assume that the thing in your head is in their head too. That's an absolutely fantastic point. Um, and I think a lot of people just kind of assume, especially when you get stuck in the moment of, uh, it's like the high stress moments of combat and whatnot. He swings the sword and, uh, and hits your shield. Uh, right, okay, that's so generic. You have not painted an epic picture of the massive mm -hmm. battle in your head. Um, and I feel like a lot of our verbs, a lot of our actions and reactions and whatnot get lost because we're rushing to the next thing, because that's that's just the nature of action, right? Is it's a fleeting moment, but stopping to describe exactly the angle of the speed of the manner of uh, which things are unfolding will add so much more to your game. Mm. Now, I think there sorry, go ahead, Kyle. Uh, I think... You also have to be careful of not throwing in too much detail. I mean, players are fickle and I don't want to say dumb, but dumb sometimes. Yeah, that's a good um, way of putting it, yes. Yeah, so like you can't throw in 
too much information, especially if you're doing like a battle, because they only really have a certain amount of bandwidth to take it. So uh, if you do write all these long, flowery prose, a lot of it is going to just be superfluous information and not won't help add anything to the tension of the scene you're trying to build. I will fully admit to being a dumber player than I am a DM. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm a moronic <laughs> yeah. player. I'm also an easily distracted player. Um, mm, but yes. as, a, as a DM, I am, and maybe it's just because I'm used to DMing. So I'm used to being involved in literally every part of what's happening. And then when but, you have this tiny little piece that's just your character sheet, your attention just goes out the window. Um, but to the point that you're making, Kyle, and it's a good one, it's, uh, yeah, I tend to wait until the end of a round and then summarize everything that happened. Okay, so I've got four players at the table and three enemies. We work our way all the way through initiative. And then before we hit the top of initiative again, I say, okay, just a quick recap. This person ran forward and did this. And then this guy reacted this way. And then before he could do that, this person tripped him up. And then that, and so I paint that panel. All right, now what do you want to do? Right. And that kind of, it resets a little bit, reminds everybody what just happened because attention is pulled. There are chips to be eaten. There are um, insults to be thrown to the person across the table from you. Pups to um, be petted. Yeah, there are ta- uh, dice to be towered. There are things to do <laughs> at a table. And so it's good to get that little recap. And that's where I throw in a lot of my uh, flowery language. Yeah. Um, and it also uh, lets me paint that narrative a little bit more to bring everybody back on the same page, but also keep the urgency up. This is, I find, really, really useful, especially when you have um, new players that take forever figuring out if they want to cast Firebolt or Eldritch Blast, right? And yeah, they but- hum and haw over it for 45 minutes. Everybody else loses it. Um, they lose their uh, attention span. So going back as the only person that has paid attention in the last 40 minutes, going back and recapping for everybody uh, will mm. bring us back on track. It's an excellent tactic. One of the things that I want to talk about really quickly, and not really quickly, is going to be the bulk of the episode, I think, is the idea of the senses themselves and, and what we use them for, because that kind of gives us an indication of how we want to use our uh, descriptive language, because it's not enough to walk into a dark room, right? Or to walk into a room and say, it's the size of a bedroom, right? Or the worst, well, hold on, the second worst. The second worst is when you walk in and say, it's 15 feet by 20 feet, and there is a table with chairs in the middle of the room, right? Which is the, you have just looked at the battle map provided to you and have described the thing you saw. Or my least favorite, in in my opinion, the worst was what fourth edition gave us was uh, the hallway is six squares long. (laughs) (laughs) You can really tell what their priorities were. Oh, they were gamifying D&D at that point. It was supposed to be a video game. And and, and when uh, you really examine the direction that D&D has gone with this huge upswing in popularity, it even more holds a candle to how wrong they were with the direction they tried to take fourth edition when you go away from that hard away towards role play and story and all of a sudden it, it explodes and you look back at gamifying things and nailing it down to it's this many squares long it's like yeah you guys didn't really know what your people wanted yeah and i come from 3.5 and fourth edition right and i've got a weird fond love for about half of each um but i 
I do appreciate it. And I think about it when I'm building a battle map from scratch, my homebrew, I do look at how fast is the monk? How many yeah. rounds do I want to take? Do I want them to get to the bad guys first or the bad guys get to them first? Right. And, and these things deserve thought and they deserve effort. But it but should not when, be the primary thought. Right. And when, when the descriptive terms used to lay out a room for your players are in squares of dimension, it is highlighting what they cared about more than anything else. Yeah. I'm not saying that you shouldn't plan a battlefield to be easier or harder for your enemies or your PCs. You definitely should think about those things. But how much you think about any of these things should be in some sort of balance according to your group. And this edition clearly has a little bit more in touch with what the average player is after versus just putting a shoots and ladders board on the table and a character sheet. Yeah, people play D&D for the story and for the experience, not for the chess game right um there are some people that do that dave dave does he's in it to win the encounter however and uh james i think to a degree is like that as well however for the most part they're still very invested in the story and the characterization as well hey everyone we're gonna keep this brief because i know you're not clicking on these episodes to listen to ads so we're getting back into mailbag time and that means that we want your questions so send them all in. You know you can reach us through info at itsamimic.com. You can send us mailbag questions through the website at www.itsamimic.com. There's the subreddit r slash itsamimic. And of course, there's the DMs on Facebook and Instagram. And in the wake of all of this 1D&D announcements, I'm curious to see what you guys are thinking about. Let's get back to the show. Let's talk about, well, the five basic senses here for a moment. First, and the most important one is sight. Sight is probably the thing that is what we focus on the most when we are describing things. Uh, Even though there are tons of other things that we can talk about, we discuss kind of the following factors. Um, How bright it is, if it's bright enough, what color things are. Like, A, can we see if it's darkness? Uh, B, what color things are. C, the size of things and related to that kind of like the distance. Um, And we can even talk about the distance when we're blinded. If it is dark, you can, you know that you are in a big cavernous open space, right? You can get that impression even though you can't see. Um, There, uh, there's the idea of texture and how reflective something is as well. And these tend to be the things that we focus on. And by reflective, I mean like you can tell when when there's not just a mirror, but the thing is shiny, right? Or the thing is dull and rusted. Which can also directly reflect whether something is wet or dry as well. Yeah. And that's kind of that's kind of where we are, where we start from. And whenever we describe a place, it is the the big gray castle up there, over there on the mountain, right? Like, and it's all sight. There's nothing else that I've used to describe that. It's just what you can see. But one of the things that we don't think about in D&D because we have, or at least a lot of people don't, and I think they should, I am under the impression it's one of the most overlooked and most important rules in fifth edition is the idea of darkness. And I don't want to talk about dark vision um, and get into the spell darkness or any of that. Um, I just want to talk about the basic rules here. So let me just, uh, I'll hit this pretty quick so that we're all on the same page just for context. 
Um, there are three levels of uh, light when it comes to D&D, &D, uh, and they affect how obscured things are. That's the language that we're using, light and obscure. So there's bright light, which lets most creatures just see normally. It says right in the rules, this includes gloomy days, torches, lanterns, fires, and other sources of light like candles, right? Um, for gloomy days and whatnot, you can still see. It is bright enough that you can still see miles away if you have a clear open view. Um, if it's a smaller light source and the surrounding area is dark, then you have a specific radius uh, that is specified with the item. Uh, this can also include things that are illuminated through magic as well. So, uh, But then you get dim light. Dim light's the one that's always forgotten. People tend to think that there are only three levels um, uh, of, uh, of sight in D&D, &D, which is bright, blind, and dark vision. But we also have bright light, uh, which is, if you just think about it, it's shadows. And this creates a lightly obscured area. So this is an area of dim light. It's usually a boundary between a source of bright light, uh, like a torch, uh, and the surrounding darkness. The soft light of twilight and dawn also counts as dim light. Um, a particularly brilliant full moon might bathe the land in dim light. And the way that I think about it, and tell me if you guys think about it differently, when I think about dim light, it's when I can see that there's something there, but I can't necessarily see what it is. Yeah, like mm -hmm. it, the best real life descriptor I can think of for this is when you wake up in the middle of the night because you have to pee. There are no lights on in your home and you have to use what little bit of light is actually catching your eye to not bump into the coffee table on the way to the bathroom. You see a shape. You can see the difference between the floor and a piece of furniture and the wall, but you can't read the title of the magazine on the coffee table unless you bring it much closer to your face. Yeah, I actually, I was thinking about it in the same sort of scenario, but differently. So when you wake up in the middle of the night and you look over and you see a shadow, and it looks like a person, but it's actually just a bunch of clothes on a hanger. Yep. Yeah, you can see that it's there. You just can't figure out what the details are. And this is what's um, called lightly obscured in fifth edition speak. So a lightly obscured area uh, is, of course, dim light, but also patchy fog or moderate foliage. Again, enough to block the majority of your sight, but not all of it. Creatures have disadvantage on perception checks uh, that rely on sight in this area. So if you are in dim light, that means if, it, if the sun is setting or rising or there is a full moon, you have disadvantage. Another good real life example of this, which drives me nuts on a regular basis. It is dusk or it is raining or it is snowing or foggy and you're driving down the highway. You are actively looking at what's in front of you and you can see the cars in front of you, but all the cars in your rearview mirror, you see the ones that have their headlights on, but the ones that don't disappear into your what what your actual human passive perception. Yeah. In that kind of sketchy light where it's not fully bright or fully dark where a headlight would be very easily observed, it's very easy for your mind to just completely ignore a shape that's there mm -hmm. because there's not enough light to make you out from the background noise unless there is a headlight to literally shine a light on at the thing that you're pointing it at yeah that's a good that's a good example I, there are so many um examples of of how we have navigated through dim light 
um, in our own personal lives, but we tend to prefer bright light. Even going to the bathroom in the middle of the night, I mean, I live alone. I will turn on one light and and squint my way through it, right? Tell me you don't use sonar? <laughs> yeah, echolocation. <laughs> I, I just scream my way down the hallway. That sounds like it's in the bowl. <laughs> yeah. My, my neighbors are like, oh, shit, he's peeing again. <laughs> so they're being... He's either peeing or being murdered. <laughs> Guess we'll find out tomorrow. Very narrow distinction between the two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, I had kidney stones not like last year, and I, let me tell you, those two things were the same. It was uh, yes, peeing and getting murdered. Yeah, that was... is a pain I wish on very very few people. Only Dan really. Um, <laughs> so the last level of light is uh, is darkness. Clearly which is the absence of all light. It, this uh, gives you disadvantage on, or sorry, this is considered a uh, heavily obscured area. That's the fifth edition speak. Uh, even most moonlit nights are considered dark. It has to be particularly bright for you to be able to e have even dim light. When it comes to underground spaces or unlit areas, um, you're in darkness. And that means that you can't see at all. Uh, you effectively have the blinded condition in here. Um, now, there are other things that can give you this heavily obscured, uh, it's not really a condition effect, but this heavily obscured descriptor, uh, opaque fog, dense foliage that you can't see. If it blocks your vision entirely, then it, then um, the object is heavily obscured. So if you... Ducking behind a fucking wall is technically heavily obscured. This is where we start to get into cover and concealment and stuff as well, right? And the fucky gray area between being heavily obscured by fog and whether or not that constitutes cover. Well, the idea is if it is light fog, uh, then it's lightly obscured. If it's patchy, if it's opaque fog, then it is uh, heavily obscured, right? However, what is the difference? At what point does it go from patchy to opaque? And this is where the argument comes in. And like, how far away? That's when I start to describe distance. You yep. can see 10 feet in front of you. And I'll give you, you can make shit out 15 feet away. Mm. The other senses, sound, smell, taste, and touch. We tend to focus on sound next. That tends to be where we hear the weird dripping water noises uh, coming from deep in the cavern or the shuffling of feet or the thumping of, of footsteps. We do talk about sound more than the other three by a large margin, but not nearly as much as we describe what people can see. Although using sound adds quite a bit of tension. That's the best way to create uh, anticipation. Once you see something, in theory, you know what you're in for. You know that something is there. But with sound, as humans specifically, and that's kind of the lens that we play D&D through, even when we're playing elves, we see elves from a human perspective. Um, sound is the thing that gives us the indication that something is coming or something is leaving, but we don't know exactly the details of how big it is, how far away it is, what color it is. All of these things that we were thinking about beforehand, is it shiny? Is it, is, has it got a rough texture to it? We don't know until we can then see it. So a lot of the time, sound is the precursor to sight. Um, sometimes smell is as well, and that's uh, that's not usually good. <laughs> it can be, but uh, that's no. That's as, as someone who sits at a D and D table, 
smell is not something that I am I am eager to to investigate with these people. Um, do you guys spend a lot of time on sound and smell when you're describing and setting up a scene? It's very scenario specific, I would say. Unless it's something pertinent or I'm trying to build tension, not really, right? Like I'm not going to bother um, explaining that there's a gently babbling brook running next to you. But if it's, uh, if I'm trying to build like horror in a story, like, oh, you can hear clicking uh, bouncing off the walls, but you can't determine where it's coming from or what it is, right? Jeff, how do you feel about it? I definitely use sound more than smell, and I've been trying to use smell more. Um, I've found sound to be a good thing when you're looking to create a status change, when the group is getting a little too complacent, when they're taking a little too much time with something, when they're not focusing, throw a sound at them. They'll perk up, pay attention, and change what they're doing pretty quickly. Traveling down the road and you hear wolves to the southwest, and they're getting closer. And then you hear another one on the other side of the road. They change what they were doing and now they're doing something else. If you're moving through a sunken cavern or whatever and the noise of water dripping suddenly stops, I like using sound to change the status of whatever my people are doing and how they're interacting with it to force them to re-examine what's going on. And then smell, as I you know had mentioned earlier, is useful for when you really want a visceral reaction to a descriptor of something mm. yeah i tend not to play with smell that much um unless i'm really trying to drive the point home if it is hags and trolls and the stench cow uh then yes absolutely i'm dealing with smell if someone dives into the into the chicken coop for cover they will get hit with smell but for the most part, I tend to ignore it and say, you know, there, even if there are uh, flowers on the table, I will say they're pleasantly fragrant and move on. I'm not getting into it because, frankly, we don't have the language, in at <laughs> least English, to get into definitive smells. Besides, it smells like a thing. Our descriptive language is merely comparison, right? We can talk about all sorts of colors and a spectrum of sound or whether or not it's piercing or shrill or high. We don't really have that for, for smell. There's very little. Uh, it's It smells like a rose. It smells like a baking pie. And people know what you mean, but what is a baking pie? So don't use the word baking. Don't use the word pie. Describe the smell of a baking apple pie, right? Like uh, it, it's harder to do. Yeah, there yeah. aren't that many words for specific types of smells in this language, as you said. I don't know. I, I think it's how you build a smell, right? Uh, so you can say, yeah, it smells like an apple pie, or you can get into what makes an apple pie. Is it a particularly cinnamony recipe? Does it have honey? Is it sickly sweet? But but that, I think that, that's what I mean. Two of the three things that you just said were just you describing another noun. It smells like cinnamon like honey we do have sickly sweet or putrid right Acrid. yeah yeah we do have some but it's not nearly as much as we do for sound and eat right. really more for sight um, yeah i guess that's true I, what i really like about smell is i think it is a great way to uh give a hint without hitting somebody over the head with it right it is a good way of keeping people on their toes and telling them, you know, there's something not right, but you're not exactly sure what it is. 
So if you, uh, like I mentioned earlier, if you know you have a room and it looks beautiful, and but there's just that tiny hint of something rotten or moldy, um, just something to pierce the beautiful picture is a good way to go, hey, maybe there's something more for you, the players to explore, but not giving it away entirely. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. Smell is I, I've discovered that when it comes to sound, the players tend to brace themselves. If they can hear something and they can't see it, they'll brace themselves for what's out there. If they smell something but they can't see it, they will go investigate, which is an odd thing that players do. And I, like people do it as well. What is the source of that smell? Wait a minute, what's that sound? Right? Like there's there's two different levels of curiosity there at least in my experience of dming uh if there is something that smells off they're gonna go looking for it they want to know what it is and why even if it smells like death they want to know what's dead versus with sound they either stop moving and draw weapons and wait or they run the other direction yeah when it comes to taste and touch we actually do have more descriptive words for taste than we do for smell um which is odd in the english language uh we really do <laughs> like taste but particularly where so much of taste is smell yeah mm-hmm. um and there's a lot of overlapping too i mean kyle said earlier sickly sweet but sweet is a is a taste right like it can be a smell but it's also really a taste when you say the word sweet that's what you think of um yeah I, I okay so i was thinking like you ever smelled something so strong you can almost taste it like it's yeah. like on the back of your tongue oh yeah yeah and i've been downwinded dave yeah <laughs> so taste and touch are things that we don't really focus on uh, too much and touch is one of those ones that tends to lump a whole bunch of other minor senses uh into one and we'll talk about those in a minute um but i don't have a whole lot of uh of use for taste in my D&D game, unless it's actually important to the plot. It's a poison or you get something like it's a gift from someone. It's a fine wine that tastes like this, right? I don't George R.R. R. Martin my way through a campaign, right? Why not? <laughs> <laughs> because my players are not curious. Because about your campaign would never end. Of fucking candied pheasant <laughs> that are on that's on the fucking table. They do not care. I'm not going to remember that. this next time we play Call of Cthulhu. <laughs> yeah. How many kinds of of candied pheasant are there in the <laughs> library? Yeah. Just going to start going around tasting everything and making you describe yeah. it. <laughs> what does the paper feel like in this book? Uh, you know what? Come at me. I will. I will prep that. I tear uh, a sheet out of this Bible and put it in my mouth. How does the Bible taste, Adam? Yeah, holy. So um, <laughs> it's like Swiss cheese because it's holy. Uh, let's grab our dice and roll. I have a couple of quick questions for you before we move on. Eight. Eleven. I got a ten. So, uh, Jeff, you're first. Do you play with light and darkness enough in your campaign, or is it something that you tend to, you know, let fall by the wayside? The last two months, I've actually been making a concerted effort to use, to be more aware of how I use light and darkness and actually doing one of those things that I feel like many DMs flub their way through, myself included a lot, is just kind of hand-waving the actual rule specificity of how dim and dark and bright light works with regard to players' vision, particularly where it pertains to online play on a virtual tabletop and such. I've been trying to be more specific 
to actually give people the roles at disadvantage when they're in dim light to impress on my players that if you want to see more, you're going to need a light source. Um, so in the past, no, recently I've been trying to put much more effort into that part of the game. I myself have been keeping an eye on it and I honestly hand wave it on purpose a bunch. I got a Twilight Cleric in this campaign, which which means that, yes, light and dark vision are a fucking factor. Uh, However, I also have a rogue that likes to throw things or shoot a crossbow and use sneak attack like that, which is fine. But remember, you need advantage to do it, and opposing disadvantage will get rid of that. So you lose sneak attack. If you are in dim light, if it is dusk and you sneak up on somebody to hit them, you technically can't get sneak attack, which seems fucking ridiculous. If, okay, that's something I actually want to look at. So does disadvantage always cancel sneak attack, even if you have an ally in melee? So the so the way that it works is um, in- I haven't had a rogue in a while. <laughs> yeah, in fifth edition, when you have advantage and disadvantage, it doesn't matter how many yeah. of each you have, it cancels out all of it. So one disadvantage will cancel out one a hundred different kinds of advantage. Right. When it comes to rogues, you get advantage um, from uh, specific things, but you can only sneak attack when you have this advantage, right? Or when you have an ally in melee with that character. Yes, or with that. So uh, what I was what I was struggling to remember is: is there a clause in sneak attack that says if you have disadvantage, you cannot ever get sneak attack? That's no. I need to go back and check that because I no. don't think. No, there, there's not a clause like that, but my guy likes to sneak ahead and attack from the shadows from a distance. Right. Right. So, and he's usually butthurt when he can't do it. Uh, <laughs> and so sometimes if it's going to be a cool moment, I'll hand wave it. But for the most part, I, I have learned to become a stickler. Yep. Kyle? Um, I, I try, but honestly, I forget about it a lot. It's easy to do. Yeah. It's just, I, I especially when you're changing, or like when you go from fully obscured unless you're like oh you're walking into a cave if it's constantly changing it's oftentimes hard to keep track of but i do like doing it when i can when you guys are describing a room do you do uh the whole picture of the whole room at once or do you focus on priority information only what i mean by that is i recently had a conversation with dave on the podcast about um whether or not uh, he bothers to describe anything in a room besides that shiny item on the table he wants you to pick up. It's very Resident Evil rules where, you know, it's video game. It's almost Scooby-Doo where the background is clearly painted, but the foreground that they're going to interact with has been drawn cartoon style. Uh, And Dave often DMs that way. Oh yeah, there's a shelf full of a bunch of stuff. There's one red book. Right. And like, <laughs> and he paints that picture because he wants to hit the next um, point. Now I pointed this out, Kyle's like, fuck, I'm never, never going to be able to unsee it. But, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but that's, that's kind of how he pushes the plot forward and doesn't get caught up on what he deems are unnecessary details. Do you guys really focus on the whole picture or just that priority piece of information? Jeff, I think you were first. Both. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to, am I trying to portray a sense of urgency or stress? Am I trying to give the players the impression that they have time to think about something or look at what's around them? If I'm trying to give an impression of urgency or stress, I hit high points 
I try to think of if I, you know, if I'm walking into this room, am I skimming for what pops out because I need to see what's important and move on? Or do I have time to take a longer look? Uh, when things are a little slower or I'm trying to give an impression that there's time to really pay attention to what's going on, I'll paint a much fuller picture of the room. But if I'm really trying to drive urgency, I'll narrow the scope of what I'm giving to try to, to try to get the thoughts, the direction of my players' thoughts the way I want them to go. Uh, for me, I kind of cheat a little bit because I use passive perception as my weird little guide. Uh, I have written down what everybody's passive perception is, and I will let people know when they walk into a room, uh, Any, if anybody has passive perception under 10, they don't see fucking much. They see, hey, look, there's furniture, right? Or there's a dude, right? But you're not sure who it is at first. Take a second, a half round to be like, oh, shit, there's a dude there, right? Because you weren't expecting it. But if you have a 10 to 18, I tend to say whoever has the lowest passive perception sees the very basics. And that includes priority information first, right? There's a guy standing there. He's wearing a cape and he's got purple skin, right? If you've got a 15 plus, you can tell that he's a tiefling and he's kind of got this body language. And like you immediately know more because your passive perception is more. And that's when you walk into a marketplace. Everybody gets to know, oh, here are the general sounds. Here's the how crowded it is, the very basics. But then the specific information will only go to those with, with higher passive perception. So I give only the basics um, of, of the whole picture until I start to give that priority information. I, don't, I do the opposite of what Dave does. He likes to hand out the priority information only, and I like to hand it out last. Go hunting for it. That's part of the game. Uh, for me, I would say it depends on the player's current engagement, right? Like, are they interested in what's going on in the rooms around them? Are they checking rooms? Are they searching rooms? So if they are actively searching rooms, you know, I'll put a little more into my descriptions, uh, almost like they're using their perception more actively. So I'll give them more, but I think it's also about, I don't want to waste a bunch of time if they're not going to listen to it. And I'm also not going to give them any freebies if they're not looking for it. But I also don't think everything needs to be described. Like you're walking down a hallway. It is the same hallway you've seen 50 times before. I'm not going to spend a bunch of time describing the walls and the floor. Yeah. If I'm going to describe that hallway the second time that you're in it or the third time, I'm like, so you're back in the hallway with that large portrait in it. Mm -hmm. Remember, you have a door up on the left and then at the end of the hallway, it turns right. I'm not going to give you more than that. Just what you need to have that touchstone to be able to move forward. Yeah, right? That's I think pertinent information. Yeah, yeah, I like what you were saying, Adam, about uh, using past perception to um, reveal more um, about a room or use that for deciding how much detail they see. Um, and, you know, you can be like, oh, this looks a little out of place or something like that to help them and then see if they'll engage more with it and let that be your driver for how much description you give. Uh, when do you guys withhold information? Like they should be able to see this right away, but you're going to hold back on that just to build tension or because they are all distracted and doing something else or they're wrestling a goblin into this closet. So they're not paying attention to what's in the closet, right? Like at what point do you start to hold back and do you do it from a meta perspective or do you do it just because 
in character they're distracted all of the above um if i want my players to seek a piece of information i may not hand it to them right away if i don't think that they would automatically have that information just by walking into a room turning a corner i may hold it for a certain period of time like you mentioned to try to build suspense or something if you're you know for example describing a room where there's some momentous encounter that's about to happen usually the baddies are the last thing i describe yeah it it really kind of depends on what the mood is in the scenario is it something like you said is it something that they wouldn't notice due to inattentiveness is it something they wouldn't notice because they're definitely paying attention to something else are you likely to notice the one gold piece on the floor that has you know a mind flare face carved in it if you're actually facing a mind flare that's right in front of you so i think what i may withhold depends upon what else is going on around them at the time yeah i will withhold information um very rarely but i do it almost as a punishment when they're dicking about and i don't mean like the players are dicking about the characters are are not paying attention when they are look i have three circus performers in my current party and they tend to get distracted um (laughs) you allowed that yeah and it, it, it's Dan, Dave, and Charlie, so, like, they get fucking distracted. I was about to ask yeah. if the players were circus performers or their characters, but as soon as you said Dan, I knew the answer to that question. Well, well, I'll tell you this. So, yes, both. I'll tell you this right now. Um, uh, Dan, or sorry, Dave, Charlie, and I all worked at uh, at an amusement park for a number of years. So, like, circus performers? Yes, we, yes. Uh, we, we've done that. Um, and, uh, but I will tell you this. There are Arguments. I cannot get Megan and Dan to agree on anything. If I say there's a fork in the road and to the left is death, to the right is just orgasms and wine, they will sit there and debate going left because they have to fight over everything. And if they do that every fucking time they walk into a room, then I'm going to tell them or I'm going to withhold information until they're goddamn paying attention. The funniest part, though, is that the Twilight Cleric is the one that is quiet and observant and a locks it on, so big ears. Um, and, like, I consistently give her the information and everybody else is left in the dark. Especially if they're talking amongst themselves, I will lean forward and whisper, hey, this is what you see. And so then by the time <laughs> they're paying attention, she's off talking to an NPC and getting something else, right? This is what I miss about in-person play. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you can See, send private messages, right? You can, and I do all the time. But like, there's something different about the levels of subtlety you can get up to yeah. when you're facing a person or a group of people. And, and don't get me wrong, I use private messages all the time. I have a separate voice chat for one-on-one DM whispers during a campaign. I'll pull a player out of the regular voice chat and have them go into the other one so we can have a moment that nobody else hears. I will do that. But that exact scenario that you just described is something that you really don't get the nuance that you can in an in-person game that I miss. Kyle, do you uh, do you withhold information or do you just put it all on the table? Yeah, when I'm feeling spiteful. <laughs> <laughs> I really thought you were going to say spicy and I was like, that's, <laughs> yeah. That's, right. uh, well, I mean, they come as a package deal. Yeah. <laughs> True. Uh, um, honesty (laughs) (laughs) uh withholding information i try not to i mean i want them to have the full picture i obviously i want them to also uh search for things so i'll try to be subtle about it but i don't like 
withholding information. I feel like I'm being an adversarial DM when I'm withholding information for meta reasons. So I try mm. not to do that. But my God, sometimes only one person deserves the information given. Um, and especially when they're in character doing it, when the barbarian is belching and farting loudly and, and bullying the wizard. No, the barbarian's not going to hear what's going on, right? Like that's just the way it's going to be. I will for lack of a better term, impose disadvantage on their passive perception. I just assume they get a, a negative 10 to their passive perception. So and I mean the kind of the opposite to what you're saying. I don't I don't necessarily if I'm withholding information generally, that information will probably get to the players one way or the other. It's just a matter of how it gets to them. Yeah. And yeah. to if my players in a particular moment or like a time during one of our sessions are being particularly observant they're being particularly attentive to what's going on and what i'm describing i'm more likely to withhold a little bit of information because i know they're going to reach out and grab for more and i want to reward the attentiveness and the observance of the observation of the players not necessarily the characters and how engaged they are in a moment that if i know they're asking lots of questions and they're digging deeper that's a good opportunity for me to give them a little bit less so that when they reach, there's something to reach for, that if you just give it all to them and then they ask for more and there's nothing, they can get disappointed and you can lose that engagement in that moment. Yeah, yeah that's, one of the, that's one of the subtle DM um, tricks that I use as well to reward players for paying attention. I do, so, I do something similar to get people to engage with uh, town time because there are some people that the players, they just don't want to do town time. It's, again, Dave, he, he says it's a waste of my time to go shopping here. I will just tell you what I want. Give it to me. I don't want to go role play with the, with an NPC. I don't want to see what's on the shelves. Just go do this. However, I had a barbarian, a character, a player that was playing barbarian years ago, and he would often sit out when it did downtime and they would really spend the, the time and energy on interacting with NPCs, going to different shops. And he would get frustrated like violently upset he would knock dice over and get up and storm away from the table and like he was a bit of an issue however um he kept seeing that they were getting rewards when i started rewarding them for engaging i'm not punishing him for not engaging but he's not getting what everybody else is and that got him to smarten up a little bit and start to come along and then start to interact and over time he gradually started to become engaged and have more fun um, I'm like that with the information that I give as well. If you are paying attention and you get more information than others, you get to react better. You get to be more engaged. And they'll be like, well, wait a minute. Hold on. When did we say that? Well, actually, 10 minutes ago, these two people got that information. But you guys were sitting there fondling each other's balls. I do mean juggling balls. Um, and so you were not paying attention. Beach balls? Uh, specifically juggling balls. That is a thing. Circus performers. I am not joking. It was a pain in my ass. Or Dan decides that he is going to, I'm a bard. I'm going to just play my flute as we walk down the road. All right, man. But you will not be able to hear the shit that's stalking you in the forest. Yep. <laughs> like, good on you for this. Um, and I don't want to punish you for, for role-playing in character and whatnot, but role-play appropriately and intelligently, right? You are, you're in Barovia. Stop playing the flute. <laughs> See... 
I'm the player that would do that intentionally fishing for the DM to punish me for it. Oh, oh yeah, like distract the other players to see if the... I, I'll never throw the first punch, but I'll, I'll make everybody else do it and get in trouble. I like being the player that throws jokes to make the DM laugh and frustrate my fellow players. Um, I have absolutely no problem about being the player that kicks another player's character through a doorway because it makes my DM laugh and it irritates my friend sitting next to me at the table. <laughs> you got to do that with the right group. Well, of course, you got you yeah, to know yeah, your people and you yeah. have to know you're not going to really piss anybody off. But yeah, for, for me as a player, I love little moments like that where I know that I'm just giving the DM more and more rope to hang my character with and i'm doing it anyway because i think it's funny i really 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 want to play a character who i've teamed up with another player so that they are the bully and i'm the person being bullied just for comedy's sake yeah and i want to be a gnome and i want them to be a goliath and i just want to like let's let's ramp this up and let's do it when it comes to uh passive perception how passive is it for you pretty passive um i make solid use of passive perception um in a way similar to what you were describing earlier adam i definitely use it as a decider to help me figure out what i reveal and when and to what player character in situ certain situations um i feel like how to use passive numbers is one of the trickiest things to learn for a dm that's not a combat thing is just how, when do i use this and how does this differ from having a player role for perception it, you know just understanding what's the difference between active and passive um i use it all the time anytime an npc is using stealth or something like that when my players aren't asking for perception or aren't paying attention to what's going on i i use passive perception all the time um I'm very much also the kind of DM that in session zero, I will tell my players, you do not roll a die until I ask you to. If you want to say, I am keeping a lookout for people following us, I'll tell you, you can roll. If you don't say it, you don't get to make the check. If you roll a die without me asking for it, it doesn't count for shit. So yes, I use passive perception all the time, and it is completely divided from the player asking what they see or smell or hear. I have a lot of thoughts about passive perception myself. First and foremost, I started to think about it very differently when we started to play Call of Cthulhu, when they don't have a perception role. Um, what they have is um, is spot hidden. Right. Which means if it's not hidden, you can see it. There's a difference between seeing and noticing something. Yeah, and that's where I start to get a little bit more um, iffy on it. And I, I come to it like this. Uh, there are people I know in my life that are unobservant, they're absent-minded professors, but that doesn't mean they're tripping over every piece of furniture in the room. Passive perception of 10, for me, is the basic, right? Like, they know, yeah. is this a crowded room? Are there people around? Uh, even, like, the noise, the general noise level, and I will describe that without them needing to make a roll. It's when it starts to get into the nitty gritties of um, some of the details. I use passive perception um, in a couple of ways. You know, you're supposed to use it against stealth, right? So if right. someone is sneaking up, it's against passive perception, which means when your guys are on watch overnight, they shouldn't be rolling perception checks. Their passive perception is what is required, which means that if you have sneaky enemies coming in, you're relying on the passive perception of the players that feels a little weird and wrong to me because you're on watch you yeah should. and i think also it's easy to want to hand wave that too because people like rolling dice people like feeling like they had an impact 
on whether or not they spot something or not, whether it's good or bad. Rolling more dice feels more fun than just relying on a number on your sheet. So I kind of split the difference. Uh, if you have a uh, low passive perception, look, I'm going to make you roll perception because you're on watch. Yes, you should roll dice. Yes, you chose to do this. This is your thing. We've rolled on a random table to get an encounter. You know something is there. Um, so I use passive perception to determine how close the thing gets to you before you get to roll your perception check. I don't make random encounter rolls in front of the group. They don't know if there's an encounter coming or not. Um, I also, whenever it is a watch scenario or, you know, other similar situations, I specifically ask my players what they are doing for that watch to be able to notice. Are you sitting by the fire and staring out in the woods? Are you pacing the camp? Are you climbing a tree to get a higher vantage point? These are all things that they've done. Climbing a tree to get a higher vantage point really saved my player's ass about six months ago um, because it affected the, the roles that came after for me. But I, they never, for me, they never know that there's an encounter coming or not, but it definitely does impact whether or not something gets close, uh, whether or not you notice something's happening at all. Potentially, if you roll really low, if you hear a noise that's nothing and you alert, you know, alert the whole camp and wake everybody up and go on a wild goose chase for something that isn't there because you rolled a two. So I do that very differently than you do. Yeah, the way that I roll it and not to go off on random encounters here is but I, I'm going to. Um, the, <laughs> uh, the way that I roll random encounters is uh, I roll how much time passes as well. The first thing that I roll is how many days or hours, depending on the scope of the travel, or are we just stopping overnight? Uh, and then I roll a D20. I have two different tables. I've changed this recently. One is for daytime and one is for nighttime. Things are more dangerous during the night. And, uh, and then I roll on whether or not it is an enemy or an ally or an item or a stranger or and and like there are multiple tables that I there's and I don't roll it. I say, okay, Dave, you roll this, then Dan, you roll that, then Megan, you roll this, then Charlie, you roll that. So I'm like, you're a D8, you're a D20, you're a D12, and so and it goes around the table about one and a half times before we finally land on what the thing is. And on every one of those tables, it can simply be nothing happens. So sometimes, and if it's an item, but they're on watch, they and and they have a low enough uh, passive perception. They may not find that item. Mm -hmm. So my random encounters are something will happen, not necessarily an attack, right? And uh, and a lot of the times I, I use evidence too, where you will roll the random encounter uh, and there are, there's a pack of dire wolves nearby, right? But that's what it is. It's nearby. It's not necessarily hunting. So what I'm going to do is have the passive perception pick up howling. And then we're uh, the next three rolls that they're doing around the table is going to be whether or not they move closer or further away, depending on if they get, you know, above or below an 11, right? And whether or not uh, the dire wolves are hungry. And I'm just making more rolls to find the attitude of what's happening. So they really don't know what's, what to expect. Um, and it's very on the fly that way, because uh, I've laid all the groundwork out. But I rely on passive perception um, to get me through that, especially when it comes to, again, we're talking about sight versus sound. I make a conscious decision to find visual evidence of things before the random encounter hits during the day and auditory um, uh, evidence or audible evidence when it's at night. 
I can say that as much as I think I would enjoy playing at your table, running a game your way would make me absolutely mental. It's just three pages. I just flip flip (laughs) a page once and everybody else roll dice. I don't have to do anything. It's fine. I have found you can affect a player's real world passive perception by randomly rolling dice and then asking them what their passive perception is and then go, "Mm -hmm," and then fake writing something down. Oh yeah. All the time. Yeah. So I... But personally, I don't, uh, I don't really use it for encounters. I like it more as a world building thing. So I think it's, uh, it, if they're walking through a room, maybe there is one item that kind of sticks out to them, especially if I want to, if I want to get a little more player engagement. I think that's what I mostly use it for. Do you guys use passive uh, investigation at all? Not nearly enough. Um, I generally like passive abilities and encourage their use if it's something you're comfortable with. I tend to forget that passive investigation exists most of the time, which uh, is not the case for passive insight, which is next. Um, I consider there to be really five major passive skills. It's perception, investigation, insight, stealth, mm-hmm. and history. Um, and passive okay. history is just like, do you inherently know that this is the appropriate way to act in these scenarios, right? That's a fun one. I like that. Um, and, uh, and so I asked for everybody's passive or not just passive, their skills ahead of time, because right? I build skill challenges around the party sometimes, but passive investigation for those people listening that don't know what I'm talking about, passive investigation is not actually called out anywhere in the core rule set, but a lot of DMs use it for things like, uh, when they decide they're going to go over and loot a body, you can tell them, yeah, absolutely. You find the leather armor and the short sword that that guard was, was, uh, wielding when you killed them but if they don't roll investigation they're not going to find the secret message or the health potion tucked you know in the cloak right and so that's kind of the difference between passive investigation and uh an investigation role when you walk up and uh their passive investigation when they go into the library is going to be yeah they know kind of where the uh, different sections are in the library to go look up what they're looking for, but they need to roll an investigation check to get the right book and the right chapter for the right information. In the right amount of time as well. Yes. That's a big factor that we play with in Call of Cthulhu as well, um, is your library use. You're in the library. You will accomplish something. Will you accomplish the right thing in the right amount of time? Yep. Yeah, I definitely try to factor time into skill checks anytime I possibly can to not necessarily depict pass or fail, but does this take 30 seconds? Does this take five minutes? Does it take 30 minutes? Does it take an hour? Is this going to take you all day? Hey, when you are dealing with the short and long rest mechanics of fifth edition, time is a resource. Kyle, do you ever think about passive investigation? Never. I will. Uh, yeah i fully admit it (laughs) well you've got dave as a dm and he runs out of modules and he's very to the letter right like yeah he sees what's in there and he doesn't play a whole lot with variant rules or online suggestions or anything so that doesn't surprise me too much would you be interested in playing with passive investigation or does that just seem Uh, more work i'm a little more curious about it but i don't think it would ever be a, a huge part of a game for me Passive investigation in in D and D specifically is not nearly as important as it is in something like Call of Cthulhu. Yeah. Um, so. However, it is definitely it gives you the basic auto success on the very simplistic level of investigation, 
do mm-hmm. you anything with like sorry but, uh, like anything with like a dc 10 you'd say yeah but i mean if somebody has a has five into investigation then they'll anything with the dc 15 they just automatically get to know that that is there right so yeah. if you've got an inquisitive rogue with a passive investigation of 17 and you've got you know your barbarian with a passive investigation of nine and they both pipe up and say, we're going to go loot the bodies. Which one's going to find more without making a check? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I also use it for things like figuring out shit as well. If I don't have an artificer in the group and you want to figure out how a mechanism works, your past investigation is going to give you an edge, right? You may just inherently know, oh, you turn the crank here to lift the bucket over there, right? Mm. Otherwise, if everybody has an investigation, a past investigation of 12 or lower, somebody make a roll, right? It's almost as like passive common sense. Yeah, kind of. Sometimes. Um, it's it's not necessarily about what you see, but uh, do you know how things work? Do you know, mm-hmm. can you get the finer details and find the things that are hidden away? Do you guys use passive insight a lot? Less than passive perception, but I do use it. You know, I feel like so many people fall into the trap, as has been discussed on this podcast many times, that insight checks are not lie detector tests. I use passive insight to give a particularly uh, insightful player character hints as to what the body language of a person that's talking means. Is this NPC looking at that and that player character a lot more than any of the other ones? Does it look like they're uncomfortable? Like I, I try to use it less, less for like, I feel like to a certain extent, passive perception and passive investigation are kind of like a role cheater a little bit. You can use it a little bit to kind of either avoid having to make a role or get out of having to dig further. Whereas I, I use passive insight to reward someone that's put a lot of character resource into an insight stat so that when I'm describing a social situation, I'm giving more information to that player character. Because usually for me, I have one or two player characters that are significantly more insightful than the rest, or I have a stratified group, which is what my current group is. It's very stratified. One or two are way above the other two. And I'll use it really as a tool, like we were talking about withholding information and what information you give to what PCs. That's kind of what I use it for is just an easy, this NPC is talking to these people over there. You also notice that while they're doing that, they keep looking at the other person over there or looking down at their shoes or whatever it may be to give that to the person and the one player character that has, you know, a high modifier for it. Passive insight for me, uh, I do the same thing, but I make sure that I'm describing actions and not necessarily feelings or emotions. Right. Uh, and and that is, or sorry, not feelings or emotions, the thoughts. I'd never describe a person's thoughts. You fantastic even with a uh, roll of a 24 into insight you are not reading their mind you do not know what they are thinking about but you yep. can tell that they're distracted and i will describe using my descriptive language how they're shuffling their feet i'll describe their body language uh, if i'm role playing in that moment i may uh, get a little bit antsier and start shifting my eyes around as i'm as i'm talking from that character's perspective right just so that they get a better uh idea of what this person is doing where the others might not necessarily notice that um the other thing that i use passive insight for is to help recontextualize the general situation for the players everybody knows that there's a woman that is sitting there in the middle of the road and she is like weeping and crying and they know that 
that uh, there's a body lying, you know, over there that could be a brother or a husband or a father or whatever. And that's what they get. The person with the passive insight is also going to realize that in this city specifically, uh, women are not allowed out to walk around. It is illegal to walk around um, without the presence of a male, right? Something like that. Now, I mean, yes, they're going to shut down this government here pretty quickly, uh, but uh, they're also going to understand that this is not just upset and sadness, it's fear. Right. And they're going to understand a little bit more of the context of what's happening here um, when they're negotiating with uh, with the merchant and the merchant is really given the hard sell to everybody. Everybody else may have enough insight to realize that, yeah, they're not going to budge on this. The person with the highest passive insight is going to realize that they don't have a whole lot of wares on their table um, and they seem to be wearing pretty threadbare clothing and they're not budging because they need to eat. So they'll understand motivations better um, without necessarily understanding what the what the thought process or the exact thought is of a character. Um, and that's, I don't know, that's just how I reward passive insight. Mostly when someone's trying to figure out what an NPC wants, I will just make them roll an insight check. Kyle, do you have any thoughts? Uh, I use insight mostly as uh, gauging an emotional state. Um, so when they come across somebody... Um, do they look happy? Are they sad? Um, uh, body language is a big part of it. Um, are they fidgety? Uh, are they grabbing a particular piece of clothing? Like, are they fingering uh, maybe inside their sleeve? So it looks like they're kind of going for a knife to uh, tell them that it is a more hostile situation or, you know, they're shuffling their feet. They're nervous. They're kind of glancing around before they answer questions, uh, like they're afraid somebody might overhear it. Yeah, I don't, I don't use passive insight nearly enough. Uh, I think I should start using it more. Honestly, I never even considered it. Um, insight has always been kind of an active thing for me. But yeah, one of the other things that uh, I see sometimes in the written modules is using an insight check uh, to figure out why something was created. If there's a small, uh, let's say, figurine or whatnot, you make an insight check to figure out uh, what the uh, intention or the purpose or the importance of this in this culture is. That's a really strange use of that for me. I want to rely on history checks for that, which is why mm -hmm. I have passive history. Um, I use it kind of as a, just a passive local knowledge as well and and um, I think that in the right situation, I would allow that probably with a higher DC than it would be with a history check. Yeah. Um, and I would allow a role, but I'm not sure yeah. I'd allow it to just be passive. No. Right. So that's that's another use for the passive uh, passive insight. Before we move on, I know we're, we're talking about descriptive words and whatnot. I just want to touch on these. Do you guys like passive history and passive stealth? Is there anything else that's missing? Well, you I've don't think there should be yeah. passive acrobatics? Well, I've heard an argument for passive survival. Yeah, I mean, in like to a point, yeah. I mean, I can see how some people are just naturally more inclined to not getting lost, even if they haven't necessarily been trained how to track through a forest. They just have a good sense of direction and instinctively pick the right path. Eh, I can kind of see it. I've given, uh, I had a level 20 mastermind rogue who was all about different disguises and whatnot, who I gave a passive deception too as well so that they would just walk directly by a people in city and whatnot even if they knew a different persona they wouldn't pick up that it's the same person 
right? So mm -hmm. I, I often use uh, passive skills, but that doesn't mean that I stop describing them. Right. And that's kind of the thing to, to take away from this is just because it's a foregone conclusion that you're going to automatically succeed doesn't necessarily mean that you should just skip past it. Remember, the players built these characters in this specific way because they want to be good at it and they want to explore being good at it. So give them that spotlight. Even if they've done this 40 freaking times, they're here to enjoy it. It's when, this... it's when their uh, attention span starts to, to wane on it, when they go cold on it, they don't care as much anymore. That's when that's when I tend to drop the narrative, the description a bit. That's almost exactly the same reason I give for why I don't like it personally when some DMs allow critical successes and failures and skill checks. If I oh. put expertise into stealth, a goblin should not have a one in 20 shot of beating my plus 13 on a 19. I look at yeah. I look at the uh the crit failures and the crit successes on skill checks. Uh I think about it like Call of Cthulhu, again, playing in a different system really makes you think about the mechanics a whole lot more. Um, they have different degrees of success and failure. Right. Um, and so that's what I end up leaning on. If you roll a 20, you can still fail. You just can. But if you succeed, you will succeed better than someone who rolled an 18. If you failed with the two, if you rolled a one, but you've got a plus 11, yeah, man, you may still succeed on some shit. That's not an auto failure. I think that's ridiculous. But yeah. you're gonna fail upwards, uh, even right. if you even if you roll a one on a on a accurate or athletics to climb, you are going to scramble up. It will not be graceful, but my God, you did it. Right, and this is exactly my argument. If if you're going to have a person who takes, you know, ex again expertise in stealth, I've made the decision to build a character that is better at stealth than just about anybody else on this planet. For someone else to say. That something with a negative modifier to wisdom can roll a natural 20 and still see me feels disrespectful to the choices that I made as a character to be able to make it so that that's 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 why I don't I and mean, we're getting way off the off the no, topic. No, but. I don't think we are though, because with, <laughs> with skill checks specifically, a natural 20 or a natural one is what gives me indication as a dungeon master to focus on how it is accomplished now. I don't necessarily go out of my way to describe how something works on an 11, 12, 14, whatever. If you fail in a seven or an eight, you failed, move on to the next roll, right? You didn't do it. Your sword got, or your, your pry bar got caught. You roll a one and you fail. It's not an automatic failure, but chances are you're going to fail or you're going to succeed. It's going to give me the opportunity to add a little bit more flavor, a little bit right. more spice to it. And that's kind of an indicator for me that, hey, I get to play with the descriptor because everyone is engaged. A nat one just hit the table. Yeah, it doesn't really fucking matter. But a nat one hit the table. Everyone's looking to see what happens. Right. Now, and I get I, I get what you're saying. I'm just I'm thinking of the specific scenarios where my character rolled in 19 plus 12. Your yeah. character rolled a 20 minus two and your 20 minus two is supposed to be a success over my 19 plus 12. Yeah. Uh, and, so sorry. Go are, ahead. are you, you're talking about a success through a, a 20? Like, I'm, specifically, of... I'm specifically saying that what Adam was describing as, and I, at this point I've lost why we were there in the first place, but I'm specifically <laughs> describing why I don't like, I don't like using critical successes and failures in skill checks. 
and Justin. Yeah. Oh, so like Justin, auto successes and auto failures. Correct. Like, you know, as yeah. rules is written, it's only attack rolls, but mm. there are a lot of people out there that use them for skill checks too. And I'm describing why I don't like that and think that it can be disrespectful to the choices you make when you build your character. If your DM decides that a 18 minus a 20 minus two beats in 19 plus 12. If you are at a yeah. table right now that plays that way, you need to understand that this is not rules as written. This is a yep. decision your DM has made or has just assumed because they heard it on some actual play live like podcast or they don't understand what the rules are. Whatnot. Revisit it. You should not be getting punished on skills like that. Just, just It's the same thing with saves. Unless it's a death save, if you roll a one, it is not an auto failure. Right. And I mean, it, it ultimately comes down to, I am a fan of homebrew. I am a fan of making changes to rules to suit your game. I am not a fan of changing rules in the system that you don't understand well enough to understand the cascading ramifications of that change yeah. before you make them. Yeah, and having a 10%, because um, you're talking, you know, 5% if you roll a 25% if you roll a 1. No, that's a 10% guarantee of an outcome. Yep. That It feels wrong. It just should not be the case. Um, change what you want know what it changes and how that affects everything about the rest of your game well guys i think that this is a good place to uh, wrap it up because we're so freaking off topic um there's a lot more to talk about uh on this idea of descriptive language and uh not just how to use it but when to use it and why to use it so um that's all for this discussion on setting the scene for now We've got a lot more tips and tricks for dungeon masters and dungeon mistresses. So check back regularly to see what inspirations and insights we'll have for you in the future. Next week, we'll be exploring a new kind of dragon from Fizban's Treasury of Dragons. Yeah. Hey, everybody. So I kn we know you can't get enough of the Instant Mimic podcast. So if you want to find more, hit us up on Instagram, Facebook, or at r slash it's a mimic on Reddit. Uh, you can also send us any emails with any questions or episodes you'd like to see uh, at info at itsamimic.com. Well, we also love to get some positive reviews and have you sharing us on social media and just getting the word of our podcast out to anybody you think might be interested. Thanks for listening to another episode of the It's a Mimic podcast. If you'd like to support us, we have a donate button on our website, www.itsamimic.com as well as a store for some potentially erotic merch. We also rely on word of mouth to get the news of the podcast out to the community. So please pass the word to everyone you know that we're available on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube, as well as more podcast apps. Thanks again for listening to It's a Mimic, where you never know what you're going to get, such as us rambling far, far away from the intended <laughs> ending of this episode. This has been an It's a Mimic production. Inquiries, requests, and questions for our mailbags can be sent to info at itsamimic.com. What do you guys think is the most poignant sense, I guess, when trying to describe something? What do you think brings the biggest emotional response? Well, it's not really fair because we're so dependent upon sight right so i would say one of the things that is the most maybe not poignant but the most important things specifically for sight and it's why we covered it more in depth than most um in the episode is the idea of, of light and darkness right the ability to see at all has uh, such a big impact on people's comfort levels i think on the opposite side of that 
because we are often so reliant upon sight and so accustomed to relying on sight in D&D that one of the fastest ways to get a reaction out of a player is to use smell. Yeah, I'm with you 100%, Jeff. I think uh, scent is a good way to kind of give someone a clue that something isn't right. And it can, I don't know, I find it really spooky when you describe something like a, like a rich, lavish dinner, and then there's just that undercut, undercutting smell of like mold to kind of give it like uh, this idea that there's something off beneath a beautiful tableau kind of thing. I've actually accidentally pulled my players out of their suspension of disbelief by accident. I think I said that twice. Um, when, by describing a smell in a place I didn't ordinarily, they were leaving a sewer kobold arc and coming back to the streets of like the dockside part of a coastal city. And I described the smells of the dockside portion of a coastal city. And they all immediately stopped and go, wait, is it, did it smell that bad before we went in the sewer? Cause I didn't, it didn't occur to me that I hadn't described it before. And now that I am describing it, it immediately broke immersion. Oh, oops. Why we keep, the cookie uh, crumble sometime. We, we keep saying over and over again, it's the uh, consistency in DMing is absolutely the most key thing that you can do and manipulating when you are or are not consistent i'm staunchly anti-pants until about then anyway so i'm not wearing yeah. pants right now neither am i how's it it's baby? almost three in the afternoon yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes we ramble this is this is this is the rambly group yeah <laughs> that is the understatement of the century thanks for listening bye